0: Serious XM Sports Podcasts presents Mad Dog's Daily Bite with Christopher Russo. Good afternoon, everybody! We gotta squeeze him in here, thank God. Newer show tracked him down and Poughkeepsie, but we got him in the middle here. (laughs) (laughs) He's our main buddy, uh, Stephen A. Straight shooter, a memoir of second chances at first takes. What's I, up, big
1: time, doggy? How are you now? I'm I've, in your house. They, <laughs> I'm in your house now, yes, you so I, I, I've got I've got to capitulate to something. No, degree. you don't have to capitulate. <laughs> uh, it is great to see you. This
0: is your mm. second run today here at uh, Sirius. You yes. did, of course, uh, Howard
1: this morning. Yes, I did.
0: Your first ever time with him, yeah. right? And he was raving about it afterwards. Yeah, so he that, called
1: me just called me about three minutes ago, literally, really? to say wow. that uh, you know, to say that uh, he thought I was spectacular and. And all of, this, all of these other superlatives, I was really honored that he felt that well, way. Well, how I mean, about that? Good yes. for you. No, no he's at uh, Howard's big time. Yeah, he uh, speaks that way about you. That's a good thing. Yeah,
0: I, 100%. All right, now, uh, this wonderful memoir that came out uh, on Tuesday, you've been all over America since, and mm. you're going to be all over America these next couple <laughs> days. days. Uh, straight, uh, straight shooter. Uh, I'll, I'll do a couple little themes here, mm-hmm. and I want you to comment. Number one, I am amazed that you still at 50, what are you, 55? 55. 55 years of age, still refer to your mother as mommy.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, uh, you know, that's a, you do it, you're 10, 12, whatever. (laughs) You Hollis Queens way, way back, still, after she has been passed away for five years, still refer to her as mommy. Mommy, How about
1: that? I mean, she she's the greatest woman I've ever known, man, and you know, and and my mother was very authoritative. Uh, It was not a democracy. It was her way. That was the way it was. Uh, if you were uh, her child in her house, and you know, and and you, you know, I call her ma. You call her ma. You call her mommy. I always called her mommy because we always had a special relationship, and I was always her baby boy, no matter what. Much to the chagrin of my sisters, um, if my mother baked thirty beef patties, and they because it's two of my favorite dishes: beef patties and coconut tart. That's what the, 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 the meals that I loved or the desserts that I loved from my mother. It could be 12 people in the house. She might make 30, 35 she'd literally shove aside 15 for me. Oh, wow. And everybody else had to split it. And my <laughs> sisters used to look at me like, He's, she's ridiculous. You know, why does he have to get it? That's ridiculous. You spoil it. And I used to be like, yes. And I just used to smile. And to this very day, I'm that way, especially now with my sister, Carmen, who, you, who you, you've talked about and you talk to, actually. Carmen is a sensational cook. Sensational. Well, you know, there's me and then there's everyone else. So the you meals the that special, she, I get the special, special care. All right. I like special treatment.
0: So treatment. mommy still means uh, you're going to take her lessons for the rest of your life. Always, mommy. All right. always. That's number one. Number two, wonderful job at your father's funeral. Yeah. Because you spoke to that pastor who yeah. said, Stevie, let's, let's not do anything here that you're going to regret 10 mm. years from now. Right. Say what you got to say, make it therapeutic, but let's also remember, you know, that people don't want to hear somebody
1: bashed right. uh, uh,
0: during a eulogy from their son at a right. funeral. So you played it perfectly, right down the middle. I thought that was interesting. It wasn't
1: just. It wasn't that simple, Dougie. What happened was is that my mother had passed away 14 months earlier, and I was first of all I was very disgusted at her funeral because I had no idea that it was going to be in her church, and her church was very small. Well, I'm Stephen A. There's a whole bunch of people that's going to show up, Uh, you know, executives and people like that showing up to the funeral, you know, and and no place to sit because it only seated like 120 people. I mean, my pastor, Pastor A.R. Bernard for the Christian Cultural Center. I mean, that 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 place that he has seats about 10,000, you know, and I did not know that my mother had a funeral uh, that had, and, you know, let everybody know that's what she wanted. And my sister Abigail was like, that's what she wanted. 120 she seats. 120. 120 seats. And Abigail was like, that's what she wanted. I said, I would have convinced her otherwise. And I would have simply said to her, mommy, people are going to show up and they're not going to have anywhere to sit. And they're going to be people that work that I work for. She would have changed her mind instantly because she would have wanted she thought it would have been embarrassing. She would have changed it. Wow. OK, so fast forward 14 months later and because it was such a chaotic atmosphere and we didn't get a chance to celebrate my mother in the way that I wanted to. Uh, when my father passed away, you had people that were going to show up to that. But I just felt like so much about him that was good came from my mother. And so I was going to use it as an opportunity to celebrate my, my mother, but I was not going to be apologetic for whatever I said about him. And the pastor, pastor Bernard says to me, I understand. Let's talk about that. I get where you're coming from. He says, but there is such a thing as mercy. There is such a thing as forgiveness. You can tell your truth. You can be honest, but you can also be merciful. You can also be compassionate. And when I went up there to eulogize my father, I started off my eulogy by saying, because you know how people at funerals, they all say, they, they get a few words and they say something great or positive about them. Well, I went up there after all of those people had spoken. And I said, I heard everything everybody said and you have a right to your feelings. Just know that his children have an entirely different view about him and so everybody started like my cousin Derek just kneeled forward like was hot and he couldn't believe he's like oh God please Steve don't do this I had neighbors that I grew up with whispering Steve don't do this Steve don't do this please don't do this Steve the whole bit brother-in-law nervous as hell Everybody sweating bullets because they thought I was going to go off on my father and I said my father wasn't the greatest man in the world I said but I know, I, I noticed something about my mother um, my mother never liked sports never cared about it but doggy you'd appreciate this she knew what a home run was she knew what a fastball was she knew what a no hitter was she knew what a triple was she knew what a strikeout was she knew all of these things for one reason and one reason only my father
0: watching Yankee games and
1: I said my father and I said for my mother to love him that much there must have been something special about him and then I went into all the special qualities that he had and ended it by saying no matter what, he's still my dad, and I loved
0: him. Wow, and, and that was the first time you had used that word love about your father in the whole book. I would tell Where's you. Where's at that funeral?
1: I think that's the only time I used it about him in 40 years. Oh, really? Okay. 30 to 40 years.
0: Now, you had a brother who passed away too... Car accident uh, uh, down in Texas yes. was it? Uh, back in the early nineties, who 92. was seven or eight years older than you? Nine, nine yes. years older yeah. than you, and you had a good relationship with him, but the Very age di- the age difference yeah. was a problem. So yes. you had an older brother who passed away, and then two parents in a fourteen month period. But that older brother, you were a young man, 24, yeah. 25 years of age, hadn't made your mark yet, yeah. and your brother passed away.
1: He passed away in a car accident. My brother was a traveling salesman back then. You had these sales groups, and you know they'd go. From city to city, knocking on doors, selling magazines, things of that nature. And there was a team of about fifteen people and he was very successful. He was making six figures. He was living well, it was it was good. But every month they'd live in a different place. And so my brother had elevated himself to manager. And, you know, you drive people to their location, let them go out there and work, and then you pick them up at the end of the day, that kind of thing was going on. And he was so tired that day that uh, in early October of 1992 about a week before my birthday and he uh, once he picked everybody up he was sleepy so he fell asleep picked up about 12 or 13 people who fell asleep one of those long vans and <clears throat> apparently somebody was driving and they were fiddling with the radio and they took their eyes off the road somebody cut in front of them he swerved out of control Van flipped over multiple times of the 13, 14 people. And I don't remember whether it was 13 or 14 specifically, but I know it was either one or the other of those people. My brother was the only one who was killed. Oh, my goodness. Because he was asleep and he didn't have an opportunity to brace himself right? like everybody else did. And so that was a devastating moment, the most devastating moment for me at that time. You were in
0: Greensboro at the time?
1: Yes, I was. I was in Greensboro. I was living in Archdale, North Carolina, making $15,300 a year uh, as an editorial assistant for the Greensboro News and Record. And I was writing in the evening for free, uh, sort of, you know, just busting my chops, covering Pop Warner football, covering high school football, and high school basketball. So I was doing all of these things and... um, that's when it happened and so you know it was a it was a hard 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 pill because we had gotten very very close and just two months earlier was the last time i had seen him alive which was in georgetown and it was there he had said those words to me you're going to be on the one day you're going to be the most popular guy in sports media you're going to be the next tower cosell you're going to do all of these things you just wait and see and it was two months before he passed away that he said that to me.
0: And Stevie loves Howard Cosell. That's yes. one of his idols. Which Absolutely. Is, which we'll get to that maybe if we get a chance. All right, how about Big House Gaines? Yeah. Uh, Winston-Salem, you were a basketball player. You mm. went down there, you had that little tryout, you made every shot known to yes. man, so you kind of convinced him yeah. that you can play and then you got hurt yep. before you really got a college career going and Gaines, who was, you know, a big a father figure to you yes, he and was. was annoyed when you left and then you, 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 drank, you walked yes. out, you were hurt. But they accepted you back. Give them a little rundown on big house games. Go ahead.
1: Iconic figure. Played a role in integrating the sport of basketball. His mentor was Mr. John McClendon. Yeah, who famous. invented famous. Famous invented the fast break. Four Corners as well that yep. Dean Smith ultimately adopted at the University of North Carolina. And learned the game from James Naismith himself because he was an assistant to James Naismith. That was Big House's mentor. And When I was on the basketball team, they would both be there. I mean, sometimes John McClendon would show up and he said, you're the only guy that I've ever seen that literally becomes more, becomes less accurate the closer you are to the basket. <laughs> he said, the further away from the basket you are, the more you hit. Better the much closer much. you are, the more you miss. I've never seen anything like it. And And Coach Gaines would say, You are the only boy that I have ever seen in my life that genuinely looks surprised when he misses because I felt that I was that good of a shooter. Then I cracked my kneecap in half and, you know, and 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 lost and and had to leave school because my mother's insurance wouldn't pay for my rehabilitation in Carolina. So I had to leave school to come home because that was a Division 2 school. They didn't have the facilities, the medical, you know, access to the medical, the, the you know, medical technology and all of this other stuff to pay for it anyway. And as a result, I had to leave school and then when I thought I got healthy enough, I came back for my scholarship. And Coach now, Gaines... And they were nice
0: enough to take you back. Well, you-
1: it was hard. It was hard because Coach Gaines didn't really want to talk to me. He sent me to to Mr. Heinzman first who was running the financial aid department uh, who just tore into me big time and talked about how I quit on myself. I quit on the team. I quit on the school. He was like, hey, I, you, you spent all of this time convincing us you wanted to be more than just a basketball player. And the second basketball was jeopardized because of your health, you quit. And I, I can tell you that outside of you know my brother passing away, That was the only time I had cried in my adult life. I mean, I literally cried in the parking lot. I was so ashamed of myself when he broke it down to me how many people I had let down and how many people who had believed in me because when I left school, I just left abruptly because I was so depressed. You know, I had my girlfriend there at the time, I had my teammates, uh, I loved being there because I'm a city guy and I was in a, uh, down south in the dorm and I was away from my family, my parents, I was loving every moment of it and what have you. I was so depressed that I had to leave that I left without saying goodbye to everybody. And what I didn't know was that Mr. Heinzman said, you were an honor roll student. We had an academic scholarship for you. But we didn't get a chance to tell you because you left and you wouldn't return our calls.
0: Interesting lesson. Interesting lesson. All right, let's go to the story that you wrote, and I don't remember it. And I was here uh, in the early '90s, which really sort of spearheaded your career with the Daily News yeah. when you wrote that uh, inside cover story on the poor kid who was Carlton the best Hines. One. Carlton Hines, who got killed, yeah, uh, was in the Bronx somewhere. Yeah, in the Bronx. And you were right there to cover that story. Two thirty in the afternoon. Give, yeah. Give him that. Give him that story. Well,
1: Carlton Hines was a, a, a high school phenom that uh he was ultimately went out and went away to prep school and then um he was being recruited by Jim Boeheim at Syracuse and some other programs six five dude averaging about 23 a game had real skills a lot of people respected him and apparently things didn't work out and then he had ended up on the streets you know as a drug dealer that's what they were saying about him and so a guy walked up to him in 2.30 in the middle of the afternoon and and shot him in the head in broad daylight shot his friend in the leg and then went towards his friend to try to shoot him again but the friend even though he got shot in the leg somehow some managed to escape survive or whatever the guy turned around and went back to Carlton Hines and finished him off and this is 2.30 in the afternoon broad daylight And what happened is that in the aftermath of his death, people wanted to know what happened. Um, I got access to his family. I interviewed his mother. She gave me pictures of him in the casket. She gave me a bunch of funeral pictures and all of this other stuff and gave riveting quotes. And the police were saying one thing. She appeared to be in complete denial about what what kind of life he was living and that juxtaposition was basically the basis for my article. And so when I wrote it, the Daily News blew it up to two page in zone piece and an abundance of newspapers, including both in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Philadelphia Daily News came calling for me to work for them and my aspiration was to extend beyond being a high school reporter i wanted to cover colleges and ultimately the pros i wanted to be an nba writer and so that's so that, so that a
0: this in the early part of your
1: career that's the most important story that you wrote without question early part of my career because that put everybody on notice that you know i could You know, I pounded the pavement in the streets. I know a lot of street agents. You know, you got a lot of these guys that programs use to funnel money through and favors through and all of that. I knew all of them. I knew those guys. I knew coaches. I knew players. I knew family members. I knew, I was just very, I've always been very connected to the streets.
0: And then you went to the inquiry in Philly. Yes. And got the 76ers beat after not too long. Yeah. And you loved Iverson and all those 76er teams, Larry Brown and everything. That's correct. And you and Iverson were or still are very tight?
1: Still are very tight. We talk at least twice a month. That's my. That's, that's how he's like a little brother to me. He's crazy now. Make no mistake about it. He was covering him was a beat in and of itself. You know because he I was hated to practice. He was, and he, you had to find he was, him. He was just buck wild. You had to find him. Um, you know, and I tell you this funny story. It was just hilarious. So Larry Brown is in Cleveland, Ohio, LeBron James rookie year, and Larry Brown is sitting there talking to reporters about all of this other stuff. And I say, Coach, Allen Iverson is back in Philadelphia because he's hurt. He's missing this particular game. And I say, Coach, you know, when are you going to get another shooter to help Iverson out? Because he's the lone offensive threat that you have, blah, 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 blah. Coach is surrounded by all these beat reporters. He says, (sighs) he just looks at me and says, this interview's over and tells everybody to go away. does everybody to go away. I don't feel like talking. So we turned off a tape recorder, we was walking away. Coach said, uh-uh, not you. You stay right here. And he said, All of y'all leave. I wanna to talk to Steven by myself. So he's sitting on the bench and he says, Sit down. It's okay. He said, Turn off your tape recorder. I turned off the tape recorder. He said, why are you going to ask me a question like that, Stephen? I mean, why are you wasting your time with that? You know he's not going to pass the ball to anybody. It doesn't make any difference what kind of a shooter we get. He's not going to pass the ball anyway. Why did you ask me some question like that? That really ticks me off that you asked a question like that, Stephen. So I'm cracking up laughing because he goes into this tirade about how it makes no sense to get a a, a shooter because Alan Iris is not going to pass him the ball anyway. The very next day, being the reporter I am, knowing that Larry Brown said that off the record, but it was off the record for print. It was something he wanted me to tell Iverson. I go to Iverson the next day. And I said, standing outside of Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, that was their practice facility. I said, I, I said, yo, man, Larry Brown has some things to say. He said, what'd he say, man? I said, I got it right. I said, I could have it on tape, but he told me to turn off the tape recorder, so I'm just going to quote you. He said, doesn't matter whether you get a shooter or not. You ain't going to pass the ball anyway. <laughs> and Iverson said, turn your tape recorder on right now. I said, yeah, all right. Turn it on. He said, 24 seconds in the shot clock, Stephen A., right? I said, yep. He said, you take about seven, eight seconds to get past half court, right? I said, yeah, so that's when we get into our offense, right? Sure. He said, I passed that bad boy to to Aaron McKee. He gives it to Tyrone Hill. He give it to Dikembe Matumbo. He throws it off. You throws it uh, back to Eric Snow. He said, and they give it back to me with five seconds left well evidently you didn't want to shoot the damn ball what the hell you expect me to do Get you and I seconds. just cracked up laughing and stuff like that and wrote that article <laughs> in the paper it was just an example of the dichotomy that existed the divide between him and Larry Brown they were like oil and water they both needed each other they both knew it knew it. they both hated it and it was just crazy they
0: well, won an MVP for Larry Brown they got to an NBA final one. that's right keep that that's in mind right.
1: so all of that happened
0: Good job with Stephen A. Just getting started. Straight Shooter, a memoir of second chances and first takes. We'll get to Skip Bayless and other things. George Bottenheimer, I know you love him. Yes. We'll have some fun. Straight Shooter, Stephen A. Nice enough to come in the studio today and give us some time here. And He's been busy. Trust me when I say that. I did not realize... That there were that many people on your first run through ESPN there, what, 10, 12 years ago? Yeah. That you. Well, like 15. 15, and, yeah, 2008 or whatever it was.
1: 2003 to 2009, yeah. and then I came back in 2011.
0: Which we'll get to that second part, but I didn't realize there was a lot of friction between you, bosses, and how they wanted to run things and how you wanted to do things. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, that kind of contributed here to that first demise in that period. I didn't know that there was that, because I've never seen you like that where there is this friction between you and producers. Right. Sounds like there was some of that well,
1: what, first what, what, what it was was this. It wasn't so much about the way they run things. I'm very, I don't mind capitulation to things that I sign up for. If you come and you work for Mad Dog Russo, then you know what you're getting and you know what you signed up for. It's not for you to come in and then bitch and moan about what you signed up for. So I'm very particular about that. What would happen though is that here's where I am and where here's where I combat racism, prejudice or just marginalization or whatever the case may be. I'm very particular about consistency. If it, I don't care how bad you treat me. If you treat everybody the same way, I'm good. I might not like it, but I won't call you unfair because you're consistent with how you treat. Folks, where I get my backup against anyone is when I feel I'm being treated worse than somebody else who's either on my level or lesser in terms of their level of productivity. And so what would happen is is that I'm looking at ESPN, I'm thinking about what I bring to the table, what I do, the hours that I put in, my commitment to excellence, how tirelessly I worked in pursuit of excellence, not just on behalf of myself, but for the company. And when it came time to get paid, I thought I deserved more than they offered. And when I turned it down, I like all right it'll be something that was revisited but that wasn't the case the handwriting was on the wall and it reeked of who does this dude think he is he should be grateful for what he already has let's humble him and take it away from him under the old regime and I didn't just feel it I saw it it wasn't verbalized But the body language, the kind of things that was transpiring, the assignments that I was getting, the exposure that I was prevented from having, the handwriting was on the wall. And so for me, um, it was very, very tough to deal with that because I'm the kind of person, doggy, that, that I feel this way. First of all, do I think that I'm elite at what I do? Yes. It's not because I think that I'm better at somebody than one thing. It's that I think that I'm pretty damn good at practically everything this business requires. So you might have someone that's great at this and can't do this, someone that's great at that, awful at that, etc. Et My thing is consistent. It might be good, it might be great, but it's across the board, and I know there's value. And I saw other people, black and white, to be fair, who were afforded the luxuries that I, uh, that I, that, that, that I desired that I felt was putting in far less work and was producing far less results, and I had a real problem with it. Well, as a result of that, they had a problem with me. I verbalized how I feel, I felt rather, and the handwriting was on the wall.
0: All right, that period there between that run and the run you're on now, mm-hmm. you know, you did some Fox radio thing. You go down to the St. Thomas to sort of get your head together. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you did it. You got, you made sure you talked to Skipper. You, you, Boltenheimer sort of straightened you out a little bit. You had yeah. a good relationship with him.
1: Great relationship. You had
0: a two or three, I don't know how long, about a year? How long was the little break that you had between both gigs?
1: It, it was uh, between, oh, no, no, it was two years. Oh, it was two years. yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And you talked, uh, you did the radio, Fox yes. so you were going from making 1.7 million dollars a year Is That what I
1: went from making 1.3 million dollars a year to zero I had nothing
0: and you're 42 43 years
1: old. yeah exactly about 41 and a new father first so or was, second I, 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 child first and I was scared to death scared to death because when you, you listen and I don't want to say black if you are a man I'm talking about a real man a man that believes in providing for his family, the absolute worst nightmare that you can experience is the specter of not being able to provide for your family, to pay your bills, to take care of your responsibilities. There is, for me, there is no worse feeling in the world. And to be confronted by that was the scariest thing that I've endured in my adult life. Because I was petrified that my career was over, that ESPN had cast me out and they had sent the message, we don't want them and you shouldn't either. And I could not get a job in television, excuse me, for two years. I was not allowed. No one would bring me on television. Nobody. Not 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 even BET or TV One. No one. Wouldn't touch me. And so I felt blackballed. And, you know, I I had to look myself in the face, recognize what I did wrong, determine, focus and determine myself to come back with a vengeance and to make sure that I never positioned myself for something like this to ever happen to me again.
0: What did you do wrong that you learned?
1: First of all, the number one thing that I did was I didn't understand my business Um, ratings, revenue. These are pertinent things popularity. What's the true definition of popularity? For me, I used to think it was people screaming my names in the streets. It was the billboards that you saw hanging up in Times Square on a bus stop or whatever the case may be on sides of buses. All of that has happened for me. No. Ratings and revenue. What kind of numbers do you generate in terms of an audience? And what kind of numbers do you generate in terms of profit? That's the language that I did not know. And so when I wanted more money, I was in no position to argue with ESPN about why you didn't give me more money because I didn't have the knowledge of what my true value was. And I didn't master my business. That made them the masters of my business in a position to define and clarify for themselves what my worth was. And so when I was gone, I realized that. Also realized that those who had the golden rule is those who have the gold make the rules. And you don't own it, they do. You're not the boss, they are. And if they tell you this is what they want, this is what they define as success, this is what they find as a comfortable as opposed to a cancerous environment, that's what they see. And George Bodenheimer taught me that because he was like, I know how I feel about you. I love you. He said But people who work under me, who are over you, who are in a position of influence feel this way about you. They say that about you. And you have to understand that no matter what your perception is about yourself, they have a right to have their own perception. And you have to maneuver your way through that. And so I didn't listen the first time he told me that as intently as I listened once they let me go. Wow! And when all of that happened, I made up my mind; these were mistakes that I were not. I was not going to make again. So when I finally came back in 2011, I was armed and dangerous because I had committed myself in that two-year absence from television to mastering my business knowing my market value having an idea about it paying attention to the ratings having you know getting some inside intel on the revenue that I was generating etc etc and lo and behold in 2015 when I came for one negotiation 2017 when I came for another 2019 when I came for another I was considerably better At the negotiating table. And not only that, nothing that that I asked for did they find offensive. Because I had facts that said, this is my worth. So because I bring this to the table, I believe I deserve this. Didn't always get it, but there was no animus. So you brought actual information, ratings, how much your spots cost. I knew it all. Not necessarily with the spots, because I knew how much money I was generating. Like, I'm not supposed to know. I'm talking to you. I'm telling you this right now. I can assure you they're not happy. ESPN happy about it because they know I have an idea of what my worth is. Like, for one time, I don't know if y'all recall this. There was a time when ESPN laid some folks off. Okay. And I'm not talking about ESPN. I'm talking about the business. I'm using this to as a microcosm to let people understand the business. Some dude that writes for Sports Illustrated, Digital, or whatever, decides, and he was an author, he was a best-selling author, he decides to go on some diatribe in a column about how certain people will let go, but this guy, Stephen A. Smith, is here. I dedicated 15 minutes on my radio show to going in on this dude. Oh, really? And what I said was, who the hell are you? Where I thought you were a reporter. Do your homework. I said, excuse me, I ain't talking about anybody else. But I bring in numbers. I, I, I help facilitate people getting hired. I help people keep their jobs. I generate revenue. And that's something that I would say to you. Probably I don't give a damn how anybody feels about it. I will not apologize for publicly taking that stance. I am a liability to no corporation. I am an asset because I work diligently to be an asset. I generate money. So when I sit up there and I ask for something, well, guess what? I might've asked for 12, but if I'm bringing in over 150, what's wrong? If I ask for 15 and I'm bringing in over 175, what's wrong? If I ask for 20 million, then I'm bringing in over 200 million. What's wrong? What I'm saying to you is you don't have to give it to me. And I understand any business that says, I won't give that to you. I'm saying that as a talent, I have the right to ask for it if I know or have an idea what my worth is. And when you talk to corporations, when you talk to business people, they're never offended by business. They're offended when your personal feelings infiltrate business, but they are never offended. By a business conversation. And that's a business conversation. And that's a business business conversation. Stephen A.
0: Smith, who is solely responsible for the little renaissance in the last year that, uh, that U.S. Julius had, and that's a fact. Straight shooter, a memoir of second chances and first takes. All right. Uh, along comes Skip Bayless, who yeah. a lot of people are annoyed at now. He, yeah. he, I think he's made. I thought he made a terrible decision. So did I. Because he went to a place and nobody watches it. It's FS1, ESPN oh, is the standard. Oh, you talking about that? I thought you
1: were talking about his tweet. I'm sorry. Well, the tweet
0: ahead. too. But I mean, I I, I think he. I, uh, to me, I think the fan is not connected to him right now, partly because where he's at. That might be me. But I uh, I was very impressed. He really he when you got suspended. He stepped out too. Yes, he did. I mean, very. You're very, and you, in a lot of ways, you're you, all uh, uh, this second chance deal, in a lot of ways, to him.
1: I think so. Um, I respect the hell out of Skip Bayless. Um, I got a lot of love for him. He is clearly in a quiet taste. Make no mistake about that. He's not for everybody. Um, we had a, spe- a special relationship because he trusted me, and he trusts no one. I mean outside of his wife Ernestine I don't know if there's another human being on the planet that skip trust other than me and with me it's only about 50% of the time that's just the way he's built and I would tell you that you know doing the show I could not have gotten on first take if he if it was not for him he was the one that went to Jamie Horowitz, who was the boss of first take and pushed for me to be on the show and when I did the show with him it was an instant success uh, one month after I arrived, we were number one and we haven't moved from our number one position in 11 years. Um, some people say I'm the common denominator for that. It happened with me. I was number one when we were number one. When I arrived, we stayed number one after he left all of that other stuff. I'm not one of those who takes credit away from those who are innovative enough to come up with those ideas i would not have been on first take if it were not for skip bayless so skip bayless will always be synonymous with me in that regard um and the way he stood up for me when i got suspended over the whole ray rice situation refusing to come on the air um that just cemented our brotherhood forever but i often tell people don't get it twisted yeah i love him but you want to beat him but none, but not. Well, I, yeah, I intend to. I have been. And I'm and you know, my, that's no disrespect, whether it's him or anybody, anybody that gets in my way. I'm trying to beat. OK, if Mad Dog Russo had a morning television show at 10 a.m., I try to take you out, too. And I love you. OK, that's just the way that I am. But I would tell you that, you know, for me, you know, when he stood up for me and refused to come back to work until I got back from my suspension because he felt it was undeserved that really, really resonated with me. But it doesn't stop me from disagreeing with him. I disagree with him all the time. Uh I disagree with him 95% of the time. That's what made the show so successful. Because he means what he says. He ain't playing. The LeBron and, and, and stuff. Everything. And all. Everything. It's he, not a gag to get people not, going. No man, he means this stuff, man. And don't get me wrong, he might mean it for those reasons you're talking about. He's a natural born contrarian. He is somebody that hates flowing along with conventional wisdom anything that allows him in his mind's eye to deviate from that he will do and mean it and that's what made my job with him so wonderful because we didn't even have to talk I knew we would na- you could literally pop a subject up at the drop of a hat and we wouldn't agree we just don't think alike and so because of that it was just a natural uh born debate Tandem. and and I'll always appreciate him for that. I've moved on from all of that now. It's 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 my show.
0: It's more and, of a friendly environment. You're yes. still looking for the debate, but everybody wants to go kumbaya at the end of the day. Well, this is in the a certain degree.
1: Well, let me say this: it's an atmosphere I created, and it's purposeful. Let me explain why. I think the world has become so divisive, and so incendiary in so many ways that it's important to show people. I don't agree with a damn thing Mad Dog is saying right now, but I love him. You know, it's nothing wrong with that. I'm telling you right now, first take has never been more popular than it is right now, and I'm not gonna act like I deserve credit for it. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm I'm the star of the show. Yeah, everybody that's there is because of me. But you, Swaggu, Ryan Clark, Keyshawn Johnson, Kimberly Martin, Dominique Foxworth, Dan Orlovsky, uh, you know, Michael Irvin. I mean, everybody, every single Mina Kimes, everyone, every single contributor I brought on First Take has delivered gold. Every one of y'all, not one of y'all have let me down. We all get along, we all attack each other, and we have a blast doing it. That's the show. It's called Entertainment Sports Programming Network for a reason. Let's have a good time. And that's why Troy Aikman will come on the show when we're in Tampa. That's why Michael Irvin would be up there singing and sweating and doing all of this kind of stuff. It's why Swagoo will fly home in the middle of the night from Tampa just to be on the set at 10 a.m. It's why Greenie and Wilbon and everybody else in between come on the show. It's it's fun. We're not trying to sit up there and be contentious in a negative way. There is such a thing as positive contention, and we have that on first take. Well, tape. they made a decision. They made
0: the contract <laughs> choice with you first and then left Skip. Oh,
1: they hung him out. The, well, and I and I and I completely and emphatically disagreed with that decision. Skip deserved to remain. Skip deserved He did and I told Skip this to his face. He didn't deserve more money than me, but not because of first take. He deserved more money for me than me for doing first take, but I do a host of other things that I should get paid for. So in that regard, I felt that I should get paid more than him because of all the NBA work that I've countdown done. But he, but he deserved well, more they, money for first take. But they made a choice. Yeah, he made a choice. They knew that they had. But I a didn't hot, know that. Well,
0: none, none of us yes, did. I didn't well, know. I that. didn't follow it that carefully. Right, right. But they had a hot hand in you. Yeah. You had resurrected your, you know, that yes. issue there, that yeah. uh, your career, so to speak. Yeah. And they said, you know what? I'm going to pay him this. We don't have to pay the both of them. All right, we'll be hurt a little bit. You brought Max in. Didn't quite work out. Right. We'll have to figure out how we're going to do this. But as long as we have him there, we'll have a show. Yes. So we'll save the 7 or $8 million that it's going to cost us to bring the other guy back. So we'll live with him leaving as long as we have Stephen A. That is fact. That's what they did.
1: That's what they did. I mean, I can, I can sugarcoat it anyway, um, any way I want to, but that's what it comes down to. They made that decision. It was highly offensive to Skip Bayless that they didn't take care of him. And the he way, obviously that didn't that see He felt, coming. He felt, he felt they didn't take care of him the way that he wanted them to take care of right. him. But in fairness to ESPN, there was a guy by the name of Jamie Horowitz who was the former boss at First Take that was now the boss at FS1. And he offered Skip Reportedly thirty million with a six million dollar signing bonus.
0: I guess you gotta sign that. And
1: I'm talking about that was at least six times more than Skip was making at ESPN. So when you look at it from that perspective, I I can't I, I don't think ESPN could have done anything to keep Skip under those circumstances. I don't think they, there's anything they could have done. But what I will tell you is that at the end of the day, that I feel like Skip I wanted us to be a team for years to come. We were number one in climbing. Um, and it's it's unfortunate that, you know, it worked out that way, but I would be lying if it, at this place that I'm in right now, I'm in the best place that I've been in in my career.
0: More so than you were seven or eight years
1: ago. Even, yeah, I mean, as much as I love him and, and, and love a lot of things that I was doing in the past, the fact of the matter is right now, how first take is thriving. What the show is about. The relationships that I have with all the people that I work with and the people that I work for. I have never been in a better situation in my career than I'm in right now.
0: Well, that is one soundbite that the ESPN bosses will like. I can promise
1: you. Well, I mean, whether they Man, like, send it to them, there Eddie, it's boy. just it's just it's just it just happens to be fact.
0: No, I'm in a different situation because this is a new little venue for me so I can go in here and have fun. I love the perform, right. blah, blah, blah. So that's a little different. When is enough for you? I mean, you're, you're a double nickel. You have made, I love that. That's what Jordan said with the mm-hmm. double nickel against the heat. You know, you have, you're, you're, you are, let's face it, you're polarizing. We all know that. But you are the number one sports personality in the country. Mm-hmm. But you want to do podcasts. You love to get involved in the political aspect of it. You got this book. I can. You're totally into this book. When are you going to say, you know what, geez, I've done enough. I proved to my father and my mother that I can do this. Maybe I come back. I do the two hours every day. I, I, I do the NBA because I love that. Mm-hmm. And I take it a little easy you're going as a guy right now who's starting his career instead of a guy right now who has already been successful in your career well when do you make that determination let me say this i to gotta you. move on, I
1: gotta take it easy something soon soon and I'll tell you why something has happened to me particularly since I had covid last year um <clears throat> I'm not tired my passion hasn't dissipated but what has happened is is that I have this feeling that when I'm working and I'm successful and I'm winning, everyone's clacking champagne glasses at my party but me. I'm not enjoying the fruits of my labor as much as I would like. Um, I don't get to L.A. as much as I'd like.
0: You loves L.A. Miami I'm not,
1: too. I'm not in the sunshine and the warmth as much as I would like to be. Um, I have to make a decision. I've got two years, two and a half years left on my deal. I mean,
0: do you really need I, to I, do I, a podcast? Listen, is well, it that well, important?
1: Well, well, it is important to me because I own it. It's mine. It's not for ESPN. It's not for anybody else. I own and operate it. And as a result of it, you know, I own the IP. I own the Masters. I own the RSS feed, which means it's not just the profits. I get to do what I want to do. And I get to tape it when I want to tape it. I get to work when I want to work. So it
0: hasn't gotten in the way yet. It
1: hasn't gotten in the way. But... I gotta an ask. Listen, you know what? You got people. They look at actors and actresses: Denzel and Morgan Freeman and Will Smith and all of these other people. You know who I'm fans of? Jerry Bruckheimer, Dick Wolf, the executive like, producers. The executive producers. I have aspirations to create content. I have aspirations to. The, you know, the only thing that I have a desire. I never want to detach myself from sports. I want to speak when I want to speak. So I always want to be in sports. In that regard. But I really have a desire to do late night. You want I mean, to you I, wanna I, do late night? I think I think that I could Arsonio be... Arsenio Hall I, gave I, I, it a shot. Right. I, I think that I could be arsenio hall part two i think that i i have the potential to be the heir apparent to jimmy kimmel you know i think i'd like to be i'd like my own late night i want to make people laugh i want to make people have a good time i want to i want people to know i'm not always this guy that's gotta be contentious and i gotta debate and i gotta tell you about x y z i like listening I like laughing. I like having a good time. You know, I like doing open mind I hope to. I hope Saturday Night Live calls me one day to to host Saturday Night Live one night. Yet? I've never done it. I hope that happens. I mean, I have aspirations for these things. I don't want to leave ESPN. I don't want to stop. The only thing I hate about first take is getting up early in the morning to do it. Once I'm there at 10 a.m., I'm fine.
0: Those 7.30 but, conference but, calls no, are funny.
1: But getting up that early, it does get on my damn nerves sometimes. That's all. But if, if if, in a perfect world for me, I would be able to start a little bit later doing sports and I wouldn't be limited to it. And the way that I look at ESPN is that I'm so incredibly grateful and happy with, with everything they've done for me, but I also know that I've done a lot for the network. And for me, we're owned by Walt Disney, the largest distributor of content in the world. And I'm going to be really interested in seeing what opportunities are available to me in the next year and you're or two close years. to Iger right yeah. oh that's my guy right there I mean that, that, that's the bad part about all of this I mean if there's a guy that's very very difficult for me to say no to is him I love the man I revere him I think he's the greatest executive I've ever seen and I think that the fact that he's back at Disney um is just going to do wonders for us he is the Michael Jordan Good. of executives doggy I'm telling you he walks into a room it's automatic. I, I, you've got to see it to believe it. There's Iger and then there's everyone else in my eyes. He is something special. And the fact that he's gotten to know me personally um, and has counseled me on things in the past, has guided me, he's the reason I hosted Jimmy Kimmel that night.
0: Oh, really? He's
1: the one that made that happen. This is who this man is. And so with the visionary that he is, I'm really interested in seeing Whatever the future holds, because he's a visionary.
0: You'll be successful at it. Great job with the book. We'll see you Straight next. Great shooter. Week. All right, big guy. Thank you, buddy. Want more Chris Russo? Listen to Mad Dog Unleashed weekdays from three to six p.m. Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM channel eighty-two. Hey, is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today, wherever you stream your podcasts.